you're just joining us, of course, this is Community Justice Talks, and I am your host, Molly Rowan Leach. I hope you're streaming online from anywhere in the world. Hopefully, most places can access this show. That's the intention. Uh, at khen.org, that's K-H-E-N dot O-R-G. And just a reminder that the views of Community Justice Talks expressed on this program are those of myself as executive producer and host and or my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the KHEN staff, volunteers, underwriters, or board of directors. And just a reminder to you that um, if you donate $106.90 during our spring fund drive, you receive a limited edition ball cap and tote bag, as well as a cluckin' awesome t-shirt. You can do that online at khen.org at any time during this show or otherwise. And you also can call in to our studios at 539-6286 during this hour. There's a surprise gift that comes at that 106.90 level. So join us. We are your community radio station. And it's just my pleasure, as I mentioned earlier, that we are going to be having a live conversation here with Nicholas Bradford. Nicholas is the founder of the Restorative Justice Center of the Northwest, and he directs the strategic implementation of restorative restorative justice in schools and districts around the greater Puget Sound. He also has been a lifelong student of conflict and education. He started his journey interested in education, specifically democratic, experiential, and progressive. Through happenstance, he took the long road to education and had the opportunity to facilitate ropes courses, work in a halfway house for young men returning from prison, and wilderness education. He was diverted away from the traditional classroom and in Vermont found his way towards restorative justice. This has been a galvanizing force for him. And after two years in Vermont, he moved back to the state of Washington, where he now is located, finding little restorative justice in the greater, excuse me, in the greater Seattle area. He plugged into the dispute resolution centers and has become a mentor mediator, blending that experience with RJ facilitation. That's restorative justice. He received his master's in education policy from UW, University of Washington, in 2012. And his studies spanned many of the policy problems of discipline from school resources o- resource officers, zero tolerance, the school-to-prison pipeline, and disproportionality in discipline. And he's going to tell us a little bit more about the Restorative Justice Center of the Northwest, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that. But since we're just slightly delayed and getting started with this live conversation, I I just want to warmly welcome you, and thank you so much for joining us today, Nicholas, on Community Justice Talks. Welcome. Great. Thank you, Molly. I appreciate the opportunity to share the work that we're doing here up in uh, in Seattle and, uh, yeah, dive a little bit deeper into some of the nuanced conversations that we've been having. Great. I was so inspired by uh, what you've been writing around how language influences, I I guess we could say generally, justice and any of our systemic values. But um, let's start out um, before we go into how language influences um, and transmits a certain um, level of perception around restorative justice. Let's um, open up, though, 
with anything that you'd like to share with people about what is important to you about restorative practices? What's unique about it in your experiences? Um, well, I, I've been doing restorative justice and, and practicing and facilitating in a lot of different settings, um, juvenile justice, in education schools, um, at the district level, and also I, my partner, Brooke Beckwith, is doing some work and supporting her doing some work around restorative justice in after school and youth development. And so one of the things that's really, sorry, one of the things that's really interesting to me is um, that restorative justice doesn't just fit one setting in the sense and the definitions that we talk about um, are are working and kind of like working on um, developing a definition that applies to all these different settings. So the the first one I started out with was like a, uh, this idea of restorative justice is a relational approach to conflict. And then more recently, we're working from a definition that sounds something like this, and it's, it's a set of relational practices that support the systemic implementation of institutional, institutionalized equity. And that's kind of what makes restorative justice unique for me is, is not only this equity lens, but um, institutionalizing this, really making this a, uh, a system where even when we're doing it, it, it will naturally do itself right and balance out systems of power, balance out, um, and not just systems of power that are police forces and stuff like that, but also adults and youth and balancing those those uh, systems. And so that's kind of what I think about when I think about restorative justice is, is the equity pieces, addressing a lot of the systemic um, injustices that have been put in place uh, in our school systems, in our juvenile justice systems, in our communities in general. And I'm just happy to be a part of this work and, and thinking strategically about restorative justice at the state level and at the community mm -hmm. level at the same time. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, a lot of times we go in on this show and on restorative justice on the rise into the the larger contexts and discuss um, meaning and and uh, you know provide statistics and evidence as to why restorative justice seems to be such an effective and is an effective solution um, to the growing issues that we see in our current criminal justice system. But what I'd like to ask you right now is if you might be willing to share an example of uh, that gives someone who might be listening for the first time who has really no um, understanding but perhaps wants to of what restorative justice entails um, you could give us a snapshot of what you what your job in specific is as a facilitator for example um, we work with schools and school districts to put in place systems that uh, address conflict and harm and so I, I'm a facilitator. I train both youth and, um, and adults and teachers and administrators to do restorative practices. And so I think the work at the Restorative Justice Center of the Northwest is unique in the sense that we are really trying to build in systems and not just one, um, one tool. Oftentimes restorative justice is thought about as a um, victim-offender conference, and that's sort of the only option that we have. But 
some of the work is is really kind of whole school, whole classroom type of work. And so I, mm-hmm. I do a lot of work in training circles, mm-hmm. using a circle process, and that's a talking piece, and that's and those systems build into it mm-hmm. equity. Great. When we listen more than we talk, as teachers, as administrators, we we give value and we give power to young people in our in our communities in our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some work that is is new and developing is is what I what I call sort of high capacity restorative practices, um, which is something that I'm I'm working with the Kitsap County Dispute Resolution Center on. They've run these um, anti theft circles where we have four to six to eight young people um, come together and talk about their experience of stealing something from a local store. A parent is there and some community members, and we talk about the impact and harm of that kind of behavior. Um, and we're, and the, the restorative justice center is doing the same thing with, with schools and building in a detention so that we can have a, a high capacity to address some of the harms that young people do that don't necessarily need a traditional long one-and-a-half-hour victim-offender conference. Um, and so, and then, of course, we do the facilitation for um, victim-offender conferencing and, and, uh, and training for, for youth to do that. In King County, actually, um, where Seattle is located, we're, we're piloting a new project, which is really fascinating and, and interesting in the sense of it really kind of gets to the core of restorative justice in the sense that we have you, young people co-facilitating with adults around um, – it's a diversion program, and so young people who are um, have an assault for charge, so a, kind of a, a low-level assault charge, they can be um, channeled into this program – where we have a young person and a, an adult mediator um, co-facilitating this this harm that this youth caused, um, and I really think that speaks to like the intentionality that we're working we're working with here is is that we're really trying to create systems that are at its core equitable. Mm-hmm. So it's not a panel of adults sitting there judging a youth. Mm-hmm. It's another young person and an adult talking about the impact and the harm mm-hmm. that those types of activities. And, of course, we're bringing in the victim. Um, that's why we chose, actually, that's why we chose um, assault for cases is because there's a distinct victim, mm-hmm. um, somebody who's who can come and show up and talk about the impact of their action. So You're... part of our work, yeah, is, is really strategic thinking about how to build systems that, mm-hmm. that are top to bottom. There's there's a lot um, that you've you've shared, and, and very specifically, thank you for your eloquence on this matter. Um, I, I I have an important question for you um, regarding the systems aspect um, and who it involves. And from your perspective, given that you work with multiple members and representatives, professionals. Um, you know, even perhaps police and resource officers. Mm-hmm. Um, what are their needs? Don't do don't they have some involvement here in these processes as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, those people who are most vested in the system, teachers, police officers, need to have that voice. in in, in that case. Part of this, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about accountability, but 
part of that discussion stemmed from some work that I was doing in the community of Tacoma and this idea that we need to hold police accountable. And, and at the same time, I, you know, I'm in the Coast Guard Reserve and I, I have a lot of police officers who are friends of mine. And this, this voice from the police force saying, well, you guys need to be held accountable as well. And so it becomes this adversarial system. And so, yeah, absolutely, police need to have voice because we are, we're never going to be in this situation where one party can hold another party accountable, one group, one, whether it's a community of color or the police force. If we're constantly working in an adversarial system, it's, there's not going to be any trust. There's not going to be any kind of real change and moving forward and, and growth and, and um, connectedness. And... And so, yeah, we need to bring teachers in the, into these discussions. Um, and, and the interesting thing is when we talk about schools, schools specifically, the teachers are oftentimes the people who are looking to, quote-unquote, hold youth accountable, that they want that pound of flesh, that they want that student to be suspended. Um, and at the same time, traditional punitive systems, exclusionary discipline policies, have never served teachers. Um, in the sense that, that teachers have had no voice in the discussion. Teachers have had no um, ability to say that to a, to a youth, to a student who did something harmful in their classroom, this is, these are the reasons why it's harmful. This is how it impacted me. Um, and so teachers struggle. I, I find that it's, it's a new framework, it's a new dynamic when they're asked for their input and their voice and at the same time, they're still resistant to it because of, these are new questions that we're asking. These are mm-hmm. new systems that we're putting in place. And so, for example, we had this question um, with a teacher whose car was, was egged um, by some young people who were caught. And and this this teacher wanted these, youth, these young people suspended. And I was like, well, that's not going to do anything for your relationship with these youth. And, in fact, it might damage it even more. But the question was continued continue to ask, and this wasn't a facilitation that I did, but what would you like them to do? What act of apology or active apology would these young people do given the opportunity? And the teacher couldn't answer that question. And so it's incumbent upon us as system builders to put in place and put in language around easy opportunities for young people to do, to make the act of apology and for us to coach adults in saying, like, these are some options. These are some things that are meaningful to other people. Community service connected to a church group that you go to. Community service connected to a refugee community that you support. Um, you know, washing his car, which which is one of the things they did, they did do. Um, but creating that menu of options that's really easily accessible. And, and because it's so new to, to not only teachers but to community members, to parents, um, to make it really easily accessible, we have to do those things. Let's let's go in in just a moment to more of the ground level around how language influences our systems and how you might see it transforming. But I just want to welcome our listeners. If you're just joining us, this is Community Justice Talks, and I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach. We're talking with... Nicholas Bradford, and he is the founder of the Restorative Justice Center of the Northwest. Today's topic includes what we're about to dive into even further around how language 
and justice intersect. And uh, just great to have you here. You know that we have a podcast that you can check out and distribute via social media. Pass along. It's open source licensing. That means uh, there's no copyrights. It's free information for the public. Um, You can find more. Uh, about this podcast, as well as all of our archives, including recent uh, conversations with Van Jones, who is about to launch a huge initiative called Cut 50 with Newt Gingrich, Cory Booker, and many others. That launches in late March. Go to restorativejusticeontherise.org for more information about restorative justice in the United States and beyond. There's a clickable map there, co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance. That map provides you with listings and details state by state of resources. And if you're not on that map, we want you on there. It's free to do so. Go to restorativejusticeontherise.org. So Nicholas, how how do you see language influencing our justice system currently, and how do you see it transforming? I think, um, yeah, it's such a big question, right? Um, (laughs) I find it really important that we're mindful about the meanings that underlie and underpin kind of our everyday language Um, and how adversarial our language is. Even I was working with a a school here in Tacoma, and they had a little worksheet that was my side. And it's this idea of, like, I'm going to tell my side of the story. And that's really, I mean, just in that sense of it is my side against your side, and somehow one of us is right, the rightness of things um, can really be pervasive throughout throughout the work. Um, And so, you know, we've we've talked about accountability. And... I think there is something in, in in the literature about somebody has a responsibility for something. And I think that's accurate. But what we find is when we use language around a restorative justice community or a restorative community or the facilitators or the principal is going to hold somebody else accountable, I mean, it, it really kind of goes, it's counter to the ideas that underpin restorative practices, restorative justice, in the sense that it's um, there is obligation for sure, but I can't, I as a facilitator or um, a policy person can't hold, I can't force them through the systems to to uh, be accountable. That's a choice that they can make and often make when given the opportunity to to, to allow for accountability. Um, and in our traditional justice systems, there is no there is no real space for young people or adults to say that they're sorry or that they did something and they understand it hurt other people because if they admit that, then they literally get the book thrown at them. Um, but where restorative justice is different is we start with that ability of that kind of idea of accountability. <clears throat> and what the struggle is with that is that when we start from that point, we we still use the idea of accountability that we're going to hold this young person accountable. 
when in fact that the young person is holding themselves accountable and we're supporting them in doing that. And that's a really kind of philosophical difference. And it's so interesting how when I'm facilitating with young people, I was doing a training at Garfield High School, um, and we had 16 young people getting trained up for this this um, uh, project with King County. And it was so quick, so easy for them to change their, their idea around accountability. It literally took a conversation of maybe four to six minutes when the young people were, they, they got that idea of the author of that act is going to hold themselves accountable and do the things that they need to do in order to make things right. It's not our job as facilitators. It's not the job of the victim. It's not the job of the community. Our, our job is to support that taking of account. Um, but I find that still, like, we as adults struggle to shift our thinking because we've been thinking this way, this adversarial way for so long. And I'm, I'm hopeful in the same sense that as young people come into our communities and as we have these, these deep discussions around what it means to be accountable and how is accountability created, we can challenge our language and challenge the systems that, impu- that are in place um, to think about these things differently. How, how does the, uh, let's say, the belief um, that, that is widely accepted in the field of restorative justice I'm not going to say it's, uh, you know, make it a generalization for sure, but um, there's often a very shared understanding that the act does not make the person. um, So that, you know, the the person themselves still have a chance at humanity, no matter what they've done, right? Yeah. Um, So tell us a bit, from your perspective, how that view weaves in with our languaging. What, what are the, how, how does that view um, take us towards restorative languaging, for example, as, yeah. as opposed to towards, back towards uh, us and them languaging? Yeah, I, I definitely agree that our, our, the way the restorative community, and again, yeah, not to generalize, um, talks about the act as separate from the person is is essential. And I think going into a little about the structure of restorative practices and how and why they work, it's because we're spending that time talking about the person and we, we've demonstrated through our actions as, as a community, as facilitators, as, um, as teachers or whatever, that we're going to put in the effort because we care about this young person. We're going to have a dialogue with this young person because we care about their success in school. We, we had this, um, I facilitated a, a conference for a young man returning from a suspension recently, and we went around and talked about the impact of the action, and not only on the person who was most directly impacted, but also the community. And these, I would say, five adults talked first about the care that they have for this young man 
at how much they want him to be successful in this setting and in life, and that this action isn't okay, that this action is hurtful and counterproductive to anything that we would want to have as a goal here in, in this school. And so I think about policy and I think about the structures and, des- and our desired outcomes. And if our desired outcomes are, um, you know, post-secondary success, I would, I would say, um, we, we need to put in systems that encourage that. Anything that builds relationships is, is going to, statistically speaking, increase those post-secondary outcomes. And restorative practices are grounded in that idea that we're going to spend some time with this youth in the face of conflict and talk about how much we care about them. And, not, and actually, I would say not just talk about it, but actually show it mm-hmm. through sitting there for an hour and a half after school with this young person to go through the nitty-gritty about what happened and what this young person can do to make things better. Can I, can I stop you for just a moment, if I could, yeah. please? Um, so what you just just said, I want you to please clarify uh, for those of, uh, of us who are listening who might be, um, for example, administrators at schools, teachers, folks who are really curious about implementing a possible restorative um, system. Tell us a little bit about how, in the long run, it saves teachers time, what you've seen, um, and that this isn't just another thing in addition to our amazing teachers um, already overpacked, under-respected schedules. Mm -hmm. And I I (laughs) hear that there are, um, you know, always competing programs, and the push for curriculum is and to get content is 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 a is a battle is a struggle but i really feel um and i think the evidence backs this up that when we create when we invest in that relationship early on early on in school year early on in this young person's life early on in their um school career we will receive that in as an investment, as a dividend, as a return on our investment, far, far superior. And I want to make sure that this is this is clear. So that hour and a half for that young person to um, have this conversation, that's a lot of time, and I get that. And maybe that young person will do something again that's harmful in the community, and that's, that's a struggle that we're going to have to deal with. Like recidivism rates are real. Young people will reoffend or do something again that's harmful and that's and that's just a part of I think that's a part of growing up and learning about our our communities but I want to look at the other young people in the room as well and so when I think about investment in time we invest in this one young person in order to not just benefit him but benefit the community so if there's 30 other students in that classroom and they have a restorative conference and we get maybe a half hour let's just pretend we get a half hour of good behavior or different behavior from this young person. A half hour times 30 students, that is an incredible amount of time, 15 hours. So if I were to think about that, like, okay, am I going to invest an hour and a half to get 15 hours for these other students, 
well, yeah, of course, I would do that every time. But I think the impact of restorative justice is, is greater than just that kind of number. It's the, the impact of school culture, um, the changing not only just that one youth, but we change his language around impact and harm, accountability and responsibility. That trickles down to other youth. That changes the behavior of other youth in the school. And then we move the culture of the school and of every classroom from a space where harm isn't associated, it's associated with rule breaking. We change that from rule breaking to it, to understanding that we're all connected. And that, that idea of connectedness changes the game, changes the way young people interact with each other. And so, yeah, I totally understand, like, when, when we present restorative practices as victim-offender conferencing is going to take an hour to an hour and a half to just run through, that's, that's sometimes very difficult for, for systems to accommodate. But I think that there's a huge return on that investment, um, not only for that one youth, but also for the other youth in that classroom and also for the school culture at large. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to quantify that stuff, but in my experience, um, schools shift and they move from a space where that kind of thing is tolerable mm-hmm. and teachers just kind of power through their lesson to a space where, no, we're going to stop and we're going to address it. And there's positive peer pressure. There's positive language around impact and harm and, and how young people interact. Um, and at the same time, young people are young people and adults make mistakes and, and young people make mistakes. So it's not like this is some sort of magic pill that is mm-hmm. going to cure us all of, of social ills. So, but this is a way to, to teach and teach around conflict and teach with conflict in mind. And I think that, um, and I'll pause here after this, is, is that when we, when we have young people go through these conferences, when it's attached to real strong emotion, that's where a ton of learning can happen. Real mm-hmm. deep investment around the face of real harm can, can really change the game because young people expect us to respond in a certain way. They expect us to kick them out. They expect us to not care. But when we care and we show them that we care through our actions of sitting with them, like, that's a big deal. That's a huge game changer. Well, I know uh, for sure that this work is too urgent to rush, as uh, quoted from one of our global um, stewards of restorative practices, uh, the work of Dominic Barter and restorative circles Mm -hmm. is a significant influence um, growing so in our world, and there's practice communities spread all over the globe. Um, if you're interested, actually, in more information about Restorative Circles, you can go to restorativecircles.org. I believe it's .org. If it's not .org, go to .com. Um, but uh, Dominic and Restorative Circles also have suggested some different languaging, um, and I just wondered if, you know, in closing of this segment of our conversation, we're going we're gonna to do a little bit more here with you. Um, since we started a little late, Nicholas, but um, sure. share with us a bit about your knowledge of of his work around relanguaging. Since um, I don't think we specifically mentioned how he has uh, offered some ideas in that direction, for example, author and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and 
to say that Dom, I mean Dominic Barter is, is um, an amazing speaker, and and I love I've I've seen him both in Vermont and in Seattle, and I'm always amazed at his his passion and his commitment to this work, um, just in the way he he is with people, um, and that's part of the part of this work is just being with people in the face of conflict. And so the language, yeah, I I struggle with it. Um, I think it's it's something that we need to be really mindful of around. Uh, I I prefer the term author as that person authored that act. Um, I know that some people use harm and harmer. Um, I tend not to use those, and I I tend to use victim, which isn't um, something I'm really comfortable with um and again like this is the this is the these are the questions that we maybe need to answer is what makes sense and i like author and i often use person most directly impacted um but that's a mouthful (laughs) 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 right yeah i'm certainly looking for for uh feedback on or information on that i i do think that we need to move pretty far away from offender um, as as a way to to describe the person who authored an act. Well, and, and it's touchy ground too, isn't it, Nicholas? Because um, in the furthering of restorative justice practices in various systems within, at least within the United States, there's also the importance of conveying uh, the honoring of victims' needs. And, uh, you know, really being clear about that. Can you share a little bit further on that, that note um, of that yeah, importance? It's, it's incredibly important um, to, to be mindful of how we introduce the victim and how we engage the victim in these processes. I really find that the victim input and victim participation is essential to strong restorative practices. And at the same time, so in, in schools, we, we are worried a lot about bullying, harassment, and intimidation. There's, most states have laws on the books about how schools need to deal with those things. Um, and so it, I characterize that in the same sense of violence is that, that it's difficult for young people to think about. It's difficult for young people who've experienced bullying to talk about it. And it actually impacts not only just that relationship with the with the bully, but all other relationships. It becomes a pervasive way of of dealing with other people that you're afraid of being victimized by everybody, even though it's one person who's doing the bullying um, or or a few. And so, I really I really can't stress enough the importance of being mindful of that, but at the same time creating spaces for input. So, and I kind of like go to these three things. Like, obviously, it's great if the victim can be there. If they can't, that's understandable. How do we get victim a victim statement? How do I, as a facilitator, coach with the, the victim about what do you what would you say if they were here and have that read at that space? Mm-hmm. And can so I stop you there? Have, I need to stop yeah. you there because I want I want to emphasize that point um, that there are multiple ways. And even, uh, of course, that this isn't just about trying to get two people together, especially if a victim is feeling like it's impossible for them, which is totally respect, you know, respectable. Um, so again, given we may have some new listeners today, I always 
um, bring this up as a part of the conversation, just given the fact of how important and critical it is. Um, so I, I, I hate to stop you where you were there. Um, and I know we're kind of running out of time here, Nicholas. Mm-hmm. I, I really would like to hear in your closing comments today about um, anything else you'd like to share in brief um, as well as what you see happening in the state of Washington, if, if there's anything you'd like to earmark. And again, if you didn't catch the fact that we're talking with Nicholas Bradford, he's the founder of the Restorative Justice Center of the Northwest. And um, so let's, let's head into closing comments here, Nicholas. It's been great having you. Thank you. I, I, again, I appreciate the opportunity. It's, it's been wonderful. Um, and I, so... I'm very excited for Washington State. I think that as a state, we're moving forward, um, both in the policy level, at at the state level, um, and schools are continuing to be interested in doing this work. And so my challenge is building capacity for this work and also maintaining some degree of fidelity. And I think that that's really what's important for me is, is kind of making sure that people who are saying they're doing restorative work, they're doing restorative work. And so I'm working with um, the network of restorative, or excuse me, community, excuse me, dispute resolution centers, <laughs> um, the DRCs around the, the state. So the state of Washington has um, is served by each county is served by a dispute resolution center, and they have a huge bank of volunteer mediators. I've been a volunteer with that county for many many years, and I find that that's where. I'm going to put a lot of energy uh, in the near future is building out um, the network of dispute resolution centers across the state so that they can provide these services for Spokane County, for Yakima, for Walla Walla, you know, all these places that I would never get to. But we can be consistent in our messaging and our ideas around restorative practices and restorative justice if this network can get on the same page. And I think that we are we are in the early stages of meeting and talking, but I, I am pleased to be working with these group of, these group of people because they are um, committed to looking at conflict in a different way, looking at um, and engaging with youth in a really meaningful way and, and changing the way we kind of talk about um, conflict and how we interact in general. We always, in the mediation, they're mostly mediators, but in the mediation field we always talk about this isn't just about mediating this is about how you talk to other people in work in life your partner all of this stuff and mm-hmm. this is really that systemic change that i i hope to bring to not just schools but to juvenile justice and to after school youth development and um a lot of other areas that mm. we can do this work so i'm yeah. i'm happy that we're moving in the right direction here and thank you for pointing out that it's a lens of li- of living life Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's systemic as well as quite interpersonal and personal. So Nicholas Bradford of the Restorative Justice Center of the Northwest, it's been great having you here today on Community Justice Talks, and uh, hope you'll join us again someday. Thank you so much. Thank you, Molly. Have a good day now.